0: You're probably gonna recognize our next guest. Uh, he's Michael Fanone. He's a police officer that was uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. He actually had a heart attack there and some traumatic brain injury as well. Um, uh, he's got a new book out called Hold a Line, The Insurrection and One Cops Battle for America's Soul. Uh, Michael, welcome brother. Yeah, thank you for having me on. No problem. So uh, Michael, um, I wanna get to something controversial that I'm not sure you've been asked maybe you have we'll get to that in a second but first I want to have people understand who you are because people might have seen you on TV talking about January 6 and they might assume that you're a lifelong Democrat or something and I know the Republicans have made up conspiracy theories about you about how you're some sleeper cell or something along those lines but who'd you vote for in
1: 2016 uh 2016 I voted for Donald Trump okay how'd that turn out for you what well, Obviously, I regret that decision. (laughs)
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, So let's talk about January 6th a little bit now that we got that out of the way. So you were not on the scene originally, right? Um, What were you doing that day and in general uh, and at the Capitol? And uh, how did you know to go to the Capitol uh, when you got the call?
1: Uh, Well, I guess for those of you that don't know, um, I'll give you a little bit of background. So I began my law enforcement career immediately after 9-11. I joined the United States Capitol Police. I was there for about a year and I lateraled over to the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington DC where I spent two decades uh, primarily working in uh, narcotics and other small mission units within the department. Uh, On January 6th, I was assigned to one of those small mission units and um, I was supposed to be uh, doing a drug buy that day. Um, That morning or late morning, I remember um, hearing reports from officers that were already at work uh, that there were individuals being arrested as part of the stop the steal rally uh, for possessing firearms. uh, And that there were other individuals that were seen in possession of firearms and then later, um, a short time after that, I was hearing reports that a large group had broken off from that rally and were headed to the Capitol.
0: So, um, yes, but at what point in your career did you become a sleeper cell for Nancy Pelosi? At no point in my career was <laughs> I a
1: sleeper cell for Nancy Pelosi.
0: Okay, look, before <laughs> January 6th, in your wildest dreams, would you have imagined that you get accused of
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of cops that knew me throughout my career that are laughing their asses off because, I mean, I was the definition of a Fox News consumer. I hated CNN, was not a fan of MSNBC. And yeah, I mean, I bought in completely to the Donald Trump we love law enforcement. We love the military rhetoric. Yeah.
0: So, I'm going to divert here for a second. I'm gonna come back to January 6. I'm going to come back to the controversial question. But you know, since you were on that side, right? You had voted for Trump. You're watching Fox News. You believe all that stuff. Now you see that. You know, a healthy chunk of those folks have lost their minds, right? They have all these conspiracy theories about you, for example. I mean, they beat you with a blue Lives Matter flag. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any more crazy, hypocritical, and ironic than that. They tase you. I mean, they t- brutally attack you. Had a heart attack, etc. And you're and you're a cop, and they pretend to be pro cop all along. And and folks have kind of lost their minds. Had you noticed people losing their minds before January 6th? Did you notice it afterwards? Are there people in your personal life who are still Republicans and think, "Hey, I don't know man, you're Trump, I don't know who to trust here, etc.
1: You see what I'm saying? No, I, I totally get it. Um, I mean, to explain my, my own situation, in 2016, I was a single issue voter. Uh, my issue was law enforcement. Um, I had been a cop at that point for about a decade and a half. And I saw the violence against law enforcement in the wake of uh, the police shooting in Ferguson, Missouri uh, and some other incidents that occurred involving law enforcement uh, in which I believe that um, rhetoric uh, being used by members of the Democratic Party resulted in uh, violence against police officers. Uh, specifically the assassination style killings of police officers across the country. When I heard Donald Trump come along and espouse uh, rhetoric in support of law enforcement, that's all it took for me to uh, to buy it. I saw one party as being anti law enforcement, I saw another party as being pro law enforcement. I know now that uh, it was more pandering than anything else. Um, but that was my reasoning for supporting Donald Trump in 2016. I don't think anybody lost their minds as of recently. I, I think that that was the case all along. Um, but you know, if you were like me and you only sourced your news from Fox News, you weren't hearing any alternatives to the propaganda that they put out uh, with regards to you know the those types of issues and the way that um, what I would describe as uh, Trump supporters um, view those types of issues.
0: Yeah. Um, well, in my parlance, I would say it was Fox News that made them lose their minds. But uh, I think we're saying the same thing. So, um, all right, back to January 6th. You get there and you see, you said something about 40 cops that were in bad shape in a hallway or something along those lines. What was that, Michael?
1: Yeah. So, when I originally got there, um, I made my way along with my partner, Jimmy Albright, to. Uh, What's known as the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Um, for those that aren't familiar, the Lower West Terrace Tunnel is a ceremonial uh, location in the Capitol where the uh, president elect walks out onto the inaugural stage to take the oath of office. The tunnel way itself is probably about 200, 250 feet long and it's about as wide as maybe four or five adults standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, when I got down into the tunnel, uh, I saw about 40 or 50 police officers um, doing their best to prevent thousands of violent rioters from, uh, from entering uh, through the, uh, the tunnel entranceway. These officers had been there for several hours prior to my arrival. Um, most of them were part of the initial uh, MPD contingent, that responded to the Capitol around 1 p.m. I got there about 3 p.m. Uh, these officers had fought unrelieved um, for that entire two hours. Uh, and the fighting there was intense. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, and to, to describe the scene, I mean, you could not slide a credit card between two uh, individuals inside that tunnelway.
0: So, Michael, Normally, when you have a situation like that with cops, I mean, first of all, you normally never have a situation like that with cops. But if you had two cops that were in trouble, let alone the hundreds overall at the Capitol building that were in trouble. You'd have about a million cops on the spot in a second and a half, right? Why weren't there way more cops there?
1: Well, first of all, you have to understand law enforcement in Washington DC. There's about 70 plus law enforcement agencies in the District of Columbia. You have the Metropolitan Police Department, which I belong to, which was the traditional law enforcement agency. Essentially, if you call 911, we're the ones that would respond. But then you have federal law enforcement agencies like the United States Capitol Police. They're you know, sole mission is to protect the Capitol campus, as well as members of Congress and and those that are visiting or working within the Capitol compound. Uh, I think that there were significant failures on the part of uh, the executives within that department to properly prepare for um, the potential for violence on January sixth. They were clearly understaffed. Uh, their officers were not appropriately uh, equipped, and they also, I don't believe, were properly trained to handle um, an event of that magnitude. Um, yeah. In addition to that, I, I think that, you know, when you're dealing with thousands, and and I mean, by all estimates, we are talking between fifteen and twenty thousand individuals storming the Capitol grounds. I mean, even with hundreds of officers responding uh, as quickly as they possibly could, um, it. it we were overwhelmed um, and we were fighting for our lives. Uh, at some points we were outnumbered three and and even as high as five to one.
0: So Michael, that leads, finally leads me to my question that I've been wanting to ask you this whole time. I don't know if you get this question all the time or if you've never gotten it before. I, but as I looked at it, my
1: main question was, why didn't you guys shoot them? Yeah, I mean, I have gotten that question and but I appreciate you asking it. Um, there are very specific uh, policies and protocols that dictate the way police officers in America can use force against other Americans, um, and appropriately so. And the policy, what it says is that a police officer may use deadly force uh, when they believe that their life uh, or the life of another individual uh, is in jeopardy. That being said, you are accountable for every round that you fire from your weapon. Uh, And in a situation where you have individuals uh, who are in such close proximity, you know I may identify as I did when I was out in the crowd, individuals who I believed pose a deadly threat to me. And then I was authorized to use deadly force against them. That being said, had I drawn my weapon, it was most likely that it would have been stripped away from me, uh, probably used against me. And if I did get off, uh, several rounds, um, even aiming at my intended target, who's to say that I wouldn't hit another individual? Uh, and while you say that, you know, yes, they were part of an insurrectionist mob, it still doesn't mean that each and every one of them posed a deadly threat to me or to other officers. They may have been guilty of committing crimes, but they wouldn't have been guilty of committing crimes that would have risen to the level of having deadly force used against them. Uh, we don't have, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so Michael, look,
0: I generally agree with most of the things that you say. I've seen you on TV, and and obviously we've gone through this interview. But I'm not as pro cop as you are. You've been a cop, you know, for over two decades, and I've seen a lot of police abuse that that we cover. And so let me challenge you on what you're saying. I find it inconceivable that if those folks were black or Muslim, that you guys wouldn't have shot. I mean, they nearly killed you. You had a heart attack. They attacked you. They grabbed at your gun. They tased your neck over and over again. I, I you, you're telling me that in other circumstances, where it wasn't white right wingers, you guys wouldn't have shot the living crap out of those guys. I don't
1: believe that for a second. I mean, all I can tell you is, um, you know, what my experience was that day. And my experience that day, politics played nothing in the way that I used force um, as it has throughout my 20 year career in law enforcement. At no point in time did I ever take into consideration uh, the race or political creed of the individuals that I was encountering. Um, I mean, unfortunately, there are many instances of police misconduct. Um, I would never say that uh, law enforcement is above reproach or not in need of reform. Uh, But I categorically disagree with you um, in your assessment of what happened on January 6th. I think that the officers that responded there that day used incredible restraint uh, and acted professionally uh, and did the profession uh, a huge um, service in showing what and how law enforcement officers uh, should engage with American citizens.
0: So Mike, let me clarify. So I'm not saying that I don't believe you in how you would have acted, right? And my God, you nearly died. So if you had to prove that you had restraint, check, you proved it, okay? And I'm not saying that the cops overall that day didn't show restraint. They showed incredible restraint. No, that's a right wing talking point that you guys weren't restrained enough as they were kicking the crap out of you guys and nearly killing you, right? I don't believe that at all. I think it was the most amazing restraint I've ever seen from American law enforcement. But Michael, we see it on tape all the time, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of videos. I mean, a black guy pulls out a phone, he's dead. Uh, they he doesn't even have a phone. He, he tells a cop he's got a legal gun. He's dead. He, he's got twenty dollars. He's getting investigated on. He's dead. Um, you tell me you had fifteen, twenty thousand. You pick a minority, the Muslims storming the Capitol, and the killing, nearly killing the cops, and sometimes actually killing the cops. That they wouldn't have fired into the crowd. Can
1: you see why I'd be skeptical about that? I understand why people are skeptical of, of law enforcement actions, especially in the United States of America. Um, that being said, I obviously have a different perspective on some of these incidents than probably you would have. And I'm coming, at to, coming into it as a career law enforcement officer. Um, you take Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and I'm quite certain that your first conclusion that you would draw is that Derek Chauvin was a racist. I don't know if Derek Chauvin was a racist, but I do know that when Derek Chauvin interacted with George Floyd, he had lost sight of the humanity of George Floyd. He didn't treat him like a human being, he treated him like an animal. And that is a pitfall that many law enforcement officers fall into throughout their careers. This is a a profession that places human beings in contact with other human beings when they are at their worst. And we see it day in and day out. And there is no mechanism currently in law enforcement uh, to address that, and I think that that's a problem. Um, if you read through my book, that's one of the issues that I try to tackle: is uh, you know how is it that we can address uh, this? You know what I see as an officer wellness uh, issue when it comes to police officers um, losing sight of the humanity of the individuals that they're charged with protecting, and also remembering people. Remembering or reminding those officers that their job is to protect the people that they are serving, Um it, we are not an occupying military force.
0: But Michael, so last thing here, uh, that, that gets to why I asked the question. Because you had to write that in your book, because oftentimes police in America do act like an occupying force, and, and so you might not have shot. And by the way, eighty percent of the cops there might not have shot if it was black folks or Muslim folks or whoever else it might be, right? But there's chauvins in the crowd, right? In the in the in the, among the police, and so um, I've always said it's the training. It's the training. We always tell the cops your lives are more important than other people's. Better to be judged by uh, twelve and carried out by six. Every cop in the country has probably heard that dozens of times, right? And so. In a situation where your guys' lives were actually on the line, I maybe it's just subconscious, but uh, if that crowd looked different, I it is near impossible for me to believe that at least a couple of the hundreds of officers there wouldn't have started shooting into the crowd, and and in a sense, I feel like the right wingers have no idea how good they have it. I mean that, it like not getting shot in that situation.
1: To me, it was white privilege defined? Yeah, I mean, if you're asking me if there's racist cops, yes, there are racist cops. Law enforcement is a microcosm of society. There's racist people in American society, there's racist people all over the world, and that's just a reality. Do I know if there's actually a way to rid law enforcement of that? I don't know. That being said, you know, I was also a police officer throughout. Uh, the you know IMF protests in Washington D.C. and the BLM protests, uh, and I also saw e- examples of law enforcement officers acting with immense restraint uh, in the face of you know pretty extreme levels of violence. And so I would just have to disagree with you. Um, are, there, are there incidences? Absolutely, uh, but do I think that overall that? Um, Racial profiling or racism is the problem. I, I would go back to what you just said, which is training. Um, training is a huge issue within law enforcement, and that's what needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we definitely disagree on some parts. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't on the ground, but the IMF protests and the Black Lives Matter protests were nowhere near as violent as the January 6th ones, especially towards cops. I mean, they they tried to shred you guys on January 6th, and, then, and like I said, they nearly killed a couple of you. And and so, on the other hand, we definitely agree, it's the training. And we have to teach cops, these are citizens, you're supposed to protect and to serve. And yes, you're supposed to do as you did, Michael, on January 6th. Take a little bit of risk with your life to make sure citizens don't get killed. You wound up taking extraordinary risk. And I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I I not only appreciate your service on that day, but you had tremendous valor for not shooting. I don't want people cops shooting into white protesters or right wing protesters, that's nuts, right? I just don't, I just want the same treatment for African Americans and everyone else in the country. So if people read, hold the line and they get that, uh, out of your book, great, or if they get it from your example, great. But but I, but I, the entire country in a lot of ways
1: wishes there were more restraint, like we saw on January 6th, is that fair? Absolutely, I mean, what I tell officers or what I told officers that I worked with was just because you can shoot, just because you're justified to shoot doesn't mean that you have to shoot. Yes, that's exactly right and you definitely proved it
0: <laughs> cuz you had every right to shoot. And you didn't, uh, all right, Michael Fanone, uh, his book is Hold the Line. Everybody check it out. Thanks for joining us, appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. After January sixth, a lot of corporations said they were gonna do the right thing and they were not gonna support the insurrectionists. How'd that work out? Let's find out. Uh, joining me is Andy Hirschfeld, he's a contributor for TYT Investigates. Uh, And Andy's written uh, quite a bit about this, Uh, good to see you back.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. So um, Motorola was one of the companies uh, that uh, said after January 6th, they wouldn't contribute again. Am I right about that?
2: They said that and they did not necessarily follow through on that promise.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about it. How long uh, did they seem to follow through and how do we know that they stopped following through?
2: Well, it lasted a couple months. Actually, a crew reported that they started giving to some federal candidates not long after they said that they were going to pause. My reporting in particular focuses on some of these state-level election gubernatorial races in Nevada, Florida, and Texas.
0: Right. And so when the corporations made that announcement, you can go back and check tape on TYT. I said, yeah, nonsense. Never going to do it. Right, it'll last a tiny amount of time, then they'll go back to greasing all the politicians because it's too good for business. Uh, bribery well, works,
2: public um, relations uh, last uh, just as long as most people pay attention,
0: exactly. And when they uh, do the big announcement, that said, we're not giving them money anymore, the, all the press covers it uh, because they want to say, Oh, look at how wonderful corporations are. And then later, uh, when they stop doing the pledge, just a couple of months later. No one other than TYT covers it, <laughs> so then that, that's how you win in public relations, and that's how mainstream media does propaganda. Okay, so let's talk about the specifics. Um, so, uh, Greg Abbott um, is he an uh, election denier? Does he think that Trump won twenty twenty?
2: He's not downplaying it. He's 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 not saying that Trump lost. Uh, he's toeing the line. But frankly, not unequivocally going out there and saying Trump lost, get over it, is just as bad as anything else, quite frankly.
0: Right, so he's walking that line that almost all the Republicans have to walk now, where they desperately try to avoid being a brazen liar and declaring that they hate America. And we're happy that there was a near coup attempt, but at the same time, They don't want to speak against the coup attempt for fear of Donald Trump. So I'm sure Motorola has taken note of that and they have not given to him anymore, right?
2: They're continuing to give. (laughs) I raised this when I reached out for comment, I mentioned this. In fact, this is a series of stories. So we gave them multiple occasions to weigh in on this topic. So this has been in the forefront of, of their public relations uh, you know, inbox for quite a while. So they've potentially just been ignoring us.
0: Yeah, um, we're in bad, bad times. Okay, before we go to DeSantis, we're gonna go to Sheriff Joe Lombardo, of Clark County, Nevada. Cuz I actually think that might be uh, the most egregious example. Uh, and this is one of, uh, any stories on tyt.com that you should check out. We'll have the links down below. So, Andy, what happened there?
2: Well, Motorola is giving to this candidate. The candidate in particular, Joe Lombardo, as you mentioned, he is the county sheriff in Clark County, which is Las Vegas. And in that particular county, back about a decade ago, Motorola he, uh, he brokered a deal with Motorola to have them essentially uh, operate the communications for the sheriff and police department down there. Uh, so now, about 10 years later, as he's he's running uh, for governor, why not continue that relationship, right? So it, it really toes the line there of something that, that kind of appears as if Playing some political favors, uh, you did this for me. I'll do this for you. It's it's not just the standard, and this is ethically uh, it's it's not it's not great ethically either way. But donating to a candidate specifically for what appears to be political favors uh, in this particular instance, there's something directly you can point to, uh, not necessarily just in a lot of these other conversations of. Uh, with with uh, political donations from large corporations, where they may adopt policies. Uh, they may fight for policies that help the interests of those corporations. There are direct examples uh, for this specific corporation.
0: Yeah, well, let me ask you a funny question. Um, is there any other reason that co- corporations give to politicians other than to maximize their profit and to get goodies from the government.
2: Uh, I mean, not really. No, um, <laughs> there is actually there is one other thing. Um, there, uh, what I th- I, th- I actually have this conversation a lot with people who see some of my reporting, and I say, you know, that this corporation gave a thousand dollars to this candidate. A thousand dollars doesn't sound like a lot of money. Uh, especially in, in politics, but the, the, it's about what the symbol of what that represents, right? If a politician says no to that $1,000 uh, thousand donation from X organization, that organization is then going to spend millions of dollars trying to get their opponent elected. So there is something to be said there where turning down a donation is a big gesture. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing to do.
0: Yeah, that's the old silver lead uh, question that uh, Pablo Escobar would uh, put to people. Now, I could give you money or I could end you, right? And in this case, it would be ending their political career. And uh, if you think that uh, lobbyists don't do that, uh, I encourage you to check out what happened to Nina Turner in uh, Cleveland. <laughs> so, um, and that's how corruption works. Uh, Chantel Brown, on the other hand, has a lovely cushy job in Washington DC because she told all those folks, well, golly gee, I will take your money after all. Um, So now we then return to DeSantis or we get to DeSantis. So uh, I'm going to be totally shocked if uh, he's also taking these corporate contributions and Motorola is back to giving him money.
2: Yeah, the situation in Florida is much like the situation in Nevada. There's a direct relationship between DeSantis and Motorola directly. In fact, he uh, Motorola was trying to get their equipment to work specifically with some of the law enforcement uh, agencies in the state. Uh, the governor actually uh, vetoed um, the so, uh, legislation um, and had to rewrite the budget to switch from a different provider to Motorola based on the pressure that that the company was putting on DeSantis. Then the courts came back and said, "No, you can't do that." So it reverted back to to what it was. But you know the the, the what Motorola did um, and, um, and and what DeSantis how DeSantis took that was was already there.
0: Yeah, DeSantis, uh, well, look, I don't know if there's too much outside of your expertise, but DeSantis pretends to be a populist like a lot of Republicans these days do, right? Oh, We fight on the culture wars and he's gonna stick up for you and your kids unless they're trans or gay, in which case he's gonna bully them on behalf of the straight kids. It's just a real upstanding populist, right? Um, But he takes tons and tons of corporate donations and, and to me it, it it's it looks like he goes above and beyond a normal Republican, which is saying a lot, right uh, in terms of how he interacts with the corporations, hey, if you don't do as I tell you, Disney, I'm gonna try to cut into, you know, your profits and create more expenses for you and create more legislative hurdles, although I think he accidentally did Disney a favor at one point when he was trying to so-called punish them. If you do give me money like Motorola, then I'm going to be good to you, uh, etc. Am I am I I don't know if again if it's too broad a question for your expertise, but what well, what's your take on that?
2: I think it's interesting and you you bring up a good point there with Disney. Uh, A lot of the donations towards other politicians are are aimed to help them make uh, decisions that help a larger industry. Like donations from Exxon, for example, to help the fossil fuel industry more broadly. But these kind of donations like from Motorola and from Disney are targeting very specific companies and very specific relationships that they have with the state. Of course, in the context of Disney, you have Disney World. You have, have their whole operation in, in Orlando. Um, in Motorola, you have um, the you ha- you you have their uh, contract or their the contract that they wanted to control uh, some of the uh, radio systems for uh, state law enforcement agencies.
0: Right. Um- so one last thing about these corporations. Do you have any idea if any of them made a promise to stop giving after January 6th and actually kept the promise?
2: Uh, of the corporations that I've, I'm, I'm sure there's a few, but um, off the top of my head, I, I can't really name them.
0: <laughs> uh Are corporations going to stick up for themselves? Of course, are they going to give money to politicians so they can get something in return? Of course, they're corporations. They don't do things out of the goodness of their heart. So that's why they were never going to keep that place. But I love that you are tracking that and you're showing the hypocrisy just through the facts, just through the reporting of promises made and promises definitely not kept. So everybody check out tyt.com. You'll see Andy's stories there. Andy, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it.